Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Earth Hours recorded at the 2018 festival. Indigenous writer Bruce Pascoe and Cooma farmer Charles Massey discuss myths about agriculture and what it means to live in connection with the land. Your host is Geordie Williamson. Hello and welcome everybody to um, perhaps the most consequential hour of conversation you're likely to get at this festival or any other. Um, just first off, some of you may have noticed this week that Alan Jones sounded off over the opening of the uh, Commonwealth Games and he said that it was disgusting to see uh, at least 300 proud Indigenous um, musicians and dancers performing at the opening. He felt that it was too overwhelmingly Aboriginal in character. He said, they're only a part of Australia's history. To which George Megalogenus replied, well, let's do the math, Alan. 65,000 years versus 230 years of white history. And that calculates out at less than half a percent of our history is European history. And it's worth bearing that in mind while we have this discussion today and that we acknowledge that we're meeting on Awabakal and Waramai land. And my gratitude to elders part and present for being such magnificent traditional custodians until, and this is the subject of our discussion today, till we came along. To my extreme left is Charles Massey, who is author of Call of the Reed Warbler. He is a farmer, fifth-generation Monaro sheep farmer, and an ecologist. And his book, which I uh, had the, the luck uh, uh, to review for The Australian recently, is a truly significant account of what uh, European farming practices have done to the Australian continent, and what regenerative agricultural practices which draw increasingly on indigenous land use can do to try and rectify the faults that have been made. To my immediate left is Bruce Pascoe, whose Dark Emu is only the latest of a number of works of fiction and non-fiction which seek to tease out and explore the historical hurts of white arrival for first Australians and to suggest positive ways forward for black Australia. These men have both written books which I believe could save us if we were willing to listen. So I will at this point shut up and ask a very quick opening question of you, Charlie. And that is, I want you to outline for us, because we've got a lot of territory to traverse, what you believe have been the signal errors, the great mistakes that European agricultural practices um, have inscribed on the Australian landscape over the past 230 years. Thanks, Geordie, and, and welcome, everyone. That's a big question. You could even write a book on it. Um, <laughs> it's a big book, too. And I've made some of those mistakes, so I can speak with authority. I, I might start with a story. Uh, I come from the Monero region of near the Snowy Mountains, high tableland, very cold. It's 
sort of rainfall of about 20 inches. And um, originally it would have been, had a lot more timber and native grasslands. And uh, only this week, uh, this Tuesday, I ran a uh, cultural burning day or a cool burning day with a local Ngarrigo elder that I've been working with for a while. And previously he told me we've got, and the Monero has lots of sort of um, ephemeral lakes scattered through the basalt country, inward draining lakes. And there's a 200 acre lake on our place. Um, when I say our place, which we're caretakers of, uh, ownership's not the right word when you look at 2,000 generations before us. Uh, but uh, this elder, Rod Mason, a senior lawman told me that um, his grandfather told him a story about his father, that in the 1860s on that lake he speared a jabiru stork and the lake was covered in magpie geese and huge flocks of yellow and green budgerigars and brolgas. Now today you'd probably have to go to the top end or Kakadu to see that sort of thing. And what he was alluding to, and if you look at the early diaries of surveys, etc., is the country was hugely rehydrated um, before the whites arrived. There was a lot of mists and fogs, which probably added up, if you think about a few mills every night, to 12 or 13 more inches in a year. And today, a lot of that's gone uh, with the vegetation, but especially the grasslands. And uh, I, I tell a story in my, early in my book about uh, an early settler from Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, across to Western Victoria. Beautiful, spongy, native grasslands. And it took only 15 years of sheep overgrazing for that entire ecosystem to collapse to eroded gullies, salt trees falling into the gullies, etc. And so that's, that was the uh, immediate impact of livestock because Australia became the great sheep walk for the uh, industrial mills, woolen mills of, of England. And, but what's behind that, I think to answer your question, Geordie, is that when the Europeans arrived, they came with a totally different worldview um, in two respects. They, and I deal with that early in the book, if, if you think about the indigenous people and even uh, medieval peasants up until the 16th century, you could call that an organic mind. They saw themselves as an indivisible part of Mother Earth, partook in its cycles, and they didn't see themselves as separate. But as a result of that great period of intellectual development from the Renaissance, scientific revolution, industrial re revolution, and modern capitalism, we moved to what... Uh, I didn't invent the word, but you could call the mechanical mind, where increasingly, especially as capitalism, modern capitalism got going, we see ourselves as separate to Mother Earth, and Mother Earth's become a substrate for exploitation and profit. And that was the mind that arrived in Australia, and it came from uh, northwest Europe with rich, uh, the soils were post-glacial, moist, humid, chock full of nutrients, agricultural techniques designed for that. And that was the mind that arrived in Australia, and its attitude to both the land and indigenous people was the same. They were, they were impediments to um, making money, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so within only decades in most regions, um, those ancient co-evolved ecosystems that gave us hydrated landscapes and function um, just collapsed. By contrast, for the 65,000 years before that, 
and I think if you're saying if we look at the, the ancient fire record, Bruce, it could be considerably longer than that too. I mean, we keep on pushing back the boundaries of what we think of as uh, indigenous land use in this continent. So what we've got is an extraordinary length of time. In 230 years, we have exhausted soil, we've created serious water issues, salinity issues, we have uh, deforested in dramatic ways. And yet, for all of that time before, presumably through multi-decadal droughts, presumably through all sorts of severe climatic shifts, this nation, this continent, was uh, maintained as a breadbasket, which supported, I think you'll have to remind me of, of what we think the pre-contact um, population was. What were they doing right, Bruce? How did they manage to do it? Because it's an extraordinary story and one we wouldn't know about without books like Dark Emu. Well, they loved the home, they loved the mother. And it might, might seem quaint to say that uh, we need to love Mother Earth. You know, they call it flaky, don't they, these days, to say stuff like that? Um, but that's in fact what it is. Um, senior Aboriginal men wear a red headband, which signifies that um, every man has been born through a woman um, and owes allegiance to Mother Earth. That's the significance of that red headband. And it's not, it's not a, a truism. It's not something that Tony Abbott would sneer. It probably is something Tony Abbott would sneer at. Um, but it, it's a profound um, acceptance of the earth as the mother and uh, our responsibility to look, look after it. I always love listening to uh, Charles talking about country. Um, and to think of that Highland country, which I've just driven over recently, um, full of all those lakes, um, with magpie geese and brolga and, um, and Charles reed warblers um, singing, uh, is a, a magical image. Because when you drive over it now, it is hammered. That country is hammered by sheep, hammered by overgrazing. I, I, I look at the damn walls of some of those properties, how bare they are because of the hooves of sharp-hooved animals, and I think, how can you live on that property and not feel your heart bleeding, uh, that you've exposed the, the earth so cruelly uh, to the elements in that country? And, you know, writers do segue into their own favourite stories, and I'm about to do it, Geordie, um, because I remember years ago, a long time ago now, probably 20 years, uh, I was helping out one of the Aboriginal brothers in the Western District of Victoria, and we were uh, doing a, a dance performance, and I, my job was to paint up all the kids, and they're, they're McDonald boys, so they've got breasts, they're overweight, they're not very fit. So, and the design that we wanted to put on them was the magpie goose. Now, the magpie goose was common right around um, Victoria. My grandfather remembers being able to buy one for a shilling in Footscray Market. Um, and people just think that the magpie goose belongs up north. Um, 
and yet it was common in my grandfather's time uh, for magpie geese to be around. Anyway, the design is a, a, a stripe, um, you know, indicating the wings that go across the chest. And for these lads to have white ochre applied across their chest was excruciatingly embarrassing and was embarrassing for me. But they stood there, they accepted the design, and they danced that dance, and they were the first people to do it for 220 years. They were dancing the magpie goose, a creature the Victorians today don't know. And at the time, I thought, looking at those boys' eyes and how glittery they were with passion for their culture, I was encouraged by it. But my brother said afterwards, come on, I've got something to show you. So we went out the back of the old woolen mills behind Warrnambool, and he said, look down over there. There were six magpie geese. They had returned about a fortnight before um, because, by mistake, the Shire Council had allowed water back into one of the lowland areas. It was an accident. Um, they'll fix it shortly. Um, but because of that, and it had been lying there um, off and on, it was acceptable to magpie geese, and somehow or other, they knew, and they came back. And now, um, 10, 12 years later, there are hundreds of them, and they're at Tower Hill as well. I overheard Charles talking before, saying how much, how clever the earth is. But it, she's not only clever, she has an enormous will, and she wants to repair, and she wants the magpie geese to come back. And if we stop flooding, uh, stop draining flooded land, um, all of these things will come back. We will sweeten the earth. We'll sweeten the earth with water, and we won't be um, tearing our hair out and going on talkback radio asking the government for help to repair farms that we've destroyed. Geordie, I think that's an important point because both those books, uh, and Bruce is just uh, a marvellous insight into uh, what we've potentially lost but can gain, but both those books are peons of hope, really. I mean, it's, we've started with a negative, but the potential is... Bruce has just said... Well, tell us the story of the title of your book, because right. I think that's a story of hope. Sure. Uh, well, it came about because one of the farmers I visited um, just out of Canberra had inherited a, a farm that had been pretty well overgrazed and flogged out in the uh, um, dam banks, where, as you described. Uh, although I, I will argue it's more the mouths of the stock than their hooves that mm. does the damage. Um, but he'd started to regenerate his creek using a modified Peter Andrews version and, um, and some holistic grazed cattle. And as we drove down to it, the neighbour's place was, it had been set stocked, so eaten out for the last hundred years. It was bare, there was salt, creeks were eroded and dry. And about eight years into his process, there was reeds appearing and the creek was running and there was about two, three hundred metres of green coming out as it rehydrated. And as we were talking at the creek, there's a little group of um, Phragmites reeds, which are, people don't realise, they play a role in our river systems like the beaver in America. They're, they're what's called a, a keystone species. And it would be no uh, larger, this patch, than sort of a small kitchen. While we were talking, this reed warbler started to sing, and mm. Bruce and I um, would know that's a beautiful call. And um, 
He said, what's that? And I said, it, it's, it's, it's a reed warbler. And um, so he got out a nap and listened to it. <laughs> but um, the point was that was probably the first time in 130-odd years that reeds had come back into that landscape. Mm. And this bird had um, suddenly emerged. And to me, that was a wonderful metaphor for mm. if we can get, and without getting technical, um, a sort of our self-organising ecosystems working again, uh, the potential is there for Mother Earth to repair without a doubt. So you're saying, in a, in a sense, throughout the book, the most successful regenerative agricultural practices have at their hearts a degree of getting out of the way of nature's self-regulation. But what European agricultural practice on this continent has involved has been the opposite of that. How a sceptic in the audience might say, well, here you're saying that we've destroyed the landscape, but we've also been a breadbasket for the world. We've managed to maintain large-scale yields across our cereal crops. We export cattle and sheep. How have we managed to do that against the, um, the weave of, of, of the, the ecology of the continent as a whole? Well, the short answer is at great cost. <coughs> um, if I can go back a step, uh, I went back. I was, I was intrigued because um, plants I had with a merino stud, uh, I had a couple of hundred plants across six states. So I was doing a lot of traveling across Australia, looking at the landscapes getting beaten. And because we were doing things a bit differently, you'd call some of those plants early adopters. And they were also the early adopters in some of the new regenerative ag. Anyway, cut a long story short, that got me intrigued. And I went back in my late 50s and did a PhD at uh, ANU which is a wonderful um, college of multidisciplinary ecologists and human ecology and stuff. I wanted to examine why they'd flipped a worldview from, you could say, the mechanical to an organic. And um, so I had a lot of catching up to do in for nearly 40 years since an undergraduate. And in that time, one of the big developments um, came out of the computer age and, and modern physics and chaos theory and stuff was an understanding of um, of what they call complex adaptive systems, which are systems, natural systems, or the World Wide Web, for example. Uh, you get complexity and then something in inputs and it equilibrates back. In the natural sense, given proper chance, it will come back to a state of resilience, uh, never necessarily back to what, say, our landscapes might have been. And a complex adaptive system, as I ploughed through the stuff, has about 10 components, which I won't go into them all, um, biodiversity and things like that. But the key one for me was they, these systems had the capacity to, if given the chance, to self-organise after they're disturbed back to a state of resilience or health, using properties you could call, um, they call them emergent properties. But and so when I started to look at some of these regenerative farmers, and, uh, and quite a few of them when I was in a, in, a, in a new sort of holistic grazing approach were saying, well, look, my job's to get out of the way of Mother Nature. And I thought about that for a couple of years and then suddenly I realised they were intuitively talking about allowing self-organisation to get going. And, and when you look at how Australian ecosystems work, which was part of the problem when that mechanical mind arrived, um, They've co-evolved over millions of years, say for a scarce element like phosphorus, very clever ways in the microbial world and even above to recycle scarce amounts. It's far more complex than some of the uh, young landscapes in, in the Northern Hemisphere. And, 
it's just enabling that and us stepping back. And, um, but the second component of your system is, I mean, one of the great misnomers that the big multinationals put out is that we need heaps of chemical and fertiliser to grow food. But 70% of the world's food comes off five acres and less with peasant farmers, and most of them women. And, um, and they're more productive per acre than industrial farms because of their complexity. And, and we waste another 30% of food. So um, I'm not saying we shouldn't have been exporting all that wool and meat, but um, we, we have to do it better because what we're exporting is our valuable nutrients. So what we've got here is a situation where we've, the carbon economy has helped us basically go into the red in terms of our land use. But what Bruce is pointing to is a pre-contact model of um, uh, which incorporates elements of that sedentary agricultural practice that, we're, that we understand from the European model, but also um, includes a kind of a land ethic which is utterly at variance to the mm. mechanical mind you pointed out. But the question I have for you, Bruce, because you've done all of this research at the get-go of, of these arrivals coming in and seeing the land and seeing it as a beautiful, like a park, mm. and also seeing, and, and, and Charles points to this as well in his models, that the sheep and cattle are denuding this landscape. The deforestation is denuding the landscape within decades and sometimes within years, what was it about the mindset that made European agriculturalists so resistant to changing their mindsets and acknowledging that there had been agricultural practices that were more fit for purposes before they arrived? Christianity. I'm sorry to... <laughs> I don't always get away with that. Um... Thank you very much. Um, I've, I said that in St Peter's Church in Melbourne and <laughs> I never got a cup of tea, I can tell you. But um, the Bible says that um, man shall have dominion over the earth and that's the, that's the mechanical mindset. Um, not just a mechanical mindset, but it's a mind, mindset of arrogance and pride and Europeans decided to leave Europe and uh, find wealth in other places. You know, they found goods, they found spice, they found uh, tea and uh, all those things, but mostly what they found was gold and silver and, um, and took over the world in pursuit of those things, which you can't eat. Um, and gold is no good for much at all, really. Um, it's too soft to be useful. That's why Aboriginal people ignored it. Can I just race into a little story about yes. gold? <laughs> um, the Aboriginal elder from the south coast, um, I could talk about him for several weeks, but he was told by his uncle um, up around uh, Charles's country and he was taken to a place and the old man said, down there, there's a rock the size of a wash basin, and it is gold. Do you want it? He said to old Uncle Max, this old man, who is the son 
of the only survivor of the massacre on the Broadrib River. Now, we all take our law from that one boy who grew up with the name of the man who'd murdered all of his uncles, all of his aunties, all of his cousins, um, Charles Hammond. Anyway, this old man says, there's that lump of gold down there. Do you want it? And Uncle Max looked around and said, where? And the old man grabbed him by the scruff of the neck like a dog that had just shit on the lounge carpet and raced him down the hill and rubbed his nose in that gold and said, it's there. Do you want it? Purportedly, that gold is still there. May not be. But regardless of the outcome of the story, the essence of it was that gold is destroying us. The search for that gold has destroyed us. Do you want it? It was a magnificent story to be told, and to be told it on that country was, it was even greater. Um, but it's the difference between an exploitative um, approach to the earth and one which is in concert and encouraging uh, the earth uh, to, to yield um, things which are useful to us. The, um, Australia was a productive country. Um, Mitchell rode through grass that was above his waist while he was on horseback. It was difficult for the horses to see where they were going because the grass was so high. This is productivity. And those grasses were grasses Aboriginal people were growing so that they could reap the grain. Um, Mitchell rode through nine miles, not of grasses, but of stooped grain. The grasses were everywhere over those plains. And now we find it unbelievable um, that the productivity and could be as great as that. And it's about our approach to our history and what we learn from it, but also our approach to the, to the earth itself and what we're willing to accept. The un, unspoken danger to all this is our numbers, people, population. There are too many of us. We want too much, we use too much. And even at the environmental uh, conferences, that I go to, we're still served our coffee in plastic cups. We're still, we're still given water in a plastic bottle. One of, the, one of the great pieces of genius in the world, if you look at it like that, it's a bit like Dave Warner um, scrubbing the ball to cheat. One of the great pieces of genius in marketing in the world was to get Melburnians uh, and Australians in general to drink water out of a plastic bottle. For years we were told that Melbourne had the cleanest water supply in the world. Australians like to do that, you know, we've got the best athletes, we've got the best swimmers, we've got the best cheats, uh, cricketers, we've got uh, all of this um, stuff. We, we're the best, we want people to love us. But we did have the best water, we probably still do, and we should drink it straight out of the tap. And I remember the day uh, vividly when I, w I was told, I was visiting Sydney and I was told I'm reaching back 20 years ago again, I suppose. Um, I like to do that. Um, where we were told that in Sydney, there was um, um, a, a bug in the water. I can't remember what it was called now. Um, Probably Guardia, yeah, Guardia or something Guardia. like that. But it was in such microscopic proportions in that water 
and taken from a handful of tests. But that was the point at which people were told to start boiling water, using water filters and drinking water out of a bottle. Now, if that information wasn't leaked by a propagandist and um, an advertiser, uh, I'll go he. We, we are gulled by the capitalist world. It's not, you know, I, I got away with saying Christianity before. Let's see how I go now. Capitalism is the fault as, uh, at well because it divides the land up. Um, not the five, it's not the five-acre plots that are the problem. It's the 500-acre plots that are the problem and their fences and separating um, grassland from grassland, uh, vegetable garden from vegetable garden. We should be working the land cooperatively. And this is not about communism. This is about listening to the earth and working in concert with it. So that if you have got one of those lakes that uh, Charles was talking about on your property and your neighbour doesn't, then you both work his land and leave the water on your land so that you can both enjoy it. It's about looking at the world and reacting to it rather than making the world react to you. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a different mindset, it's that European mindset of dominion, making the land bend to our world. I've raved on a bit, Geordie. No, no, I, I think that that's absolutely um, fantastic. And it leads me back to, in fact, what Charlie was saying throughout the book about, uh, and we were discussing this in the green room beforehand, the difficulty of convincing Australian farmers uh, who have sometimes been, like in your situation, multi-generation in their spot, to get them to change their minds. Now, you've written about people like the Andrews, who are you know, obviously a case study close to the hunter's heart. Um, what, what do you do when you're the farmer and you're on one side of the fence and they're on the others, you want weeds, you want willows in your watercourses or whatever projects you undertake and they see that as inimical to the traditional farming practices which we know have buggered things up? Yeah, that's the key question and as one farmer said to me, um, this square foot of real estate between our ears is all a problem and, and that's what it is. It's, it's, I've got photos of fence lines with just black and white chalk and cheese um, on management and, and what I found uh, going around when I was doing my PhD, uh, talking to 80 farmers and a lot more since, was that uh, in about 60% of the cases, this, it, it had taken a major life shock to crack open the carapace of their mind. They burnt in a bushfire, marriage breakup, poisoned with chemicals, whatever it was. And then the others, they might have been more biophilic, more nature-loving, or a, a series of destabilising shocks. But I think what's behind all this, Geordie, is the really big picture, uh, which I think we're sort of uh, leading towards, and that is, is we have now moved into a whole new geological era in, in Earth's history, which is being called the Anthropocene era. Uh, we've gone out of that safe last 12,000 years called the Holocene when uh, agriculture evolved leading to our civilization, and, and where I'm still attached today, and you down the corridor are some of the world's leading scientists in this area, uh, Will Stefan and others like that. And we're all focused on climate, but the issue is that we have this extraordinary Earth system, and this unique blue-green planet, and it was actually life itself that created 
this blue-green planet. About 3.1 billion years ago, it was bacteria that first put oxygen up into the atmosphere. And then, uh, you know, over 400 years ago, the era of the great plants started to get involved in regulating carbon dioxide. So there's, there's eight or nine, depending on how you frame it, of these major systems that self-organise conditions on Earth for life to be sustained. And we have now started uh, climate, biodiversity and nitrogen and phosphorus gone beyond safe limits. If you think about um, a guardrail on a mountain road, we've stepped over that and we don't know what's going to come. And the other, the other um, major systems, all except for the ozone layer, which luckily we pulled back from, are coming close to their limits. And, and the disturbing thing is that a key factor in disturbance of these major earth systems is industrial agriculture, our land clearing. I mean, if we stop land clearing, Australia is one of the worst after Brazil and Indonesia. If we stopped today, we'd save 20% of carbon emissions. Um, and it's our use of fossil fuels and all the rest of it. Um, so the flip side of that is that it's regenerative agriculture, allowing nature to fix carbon, which we can do, um, it provides major solutions to this Anthropocene crisis that we're entering. And, and it's not, no exaggeration to say the Anthropocene crisis makes the world wars look like baby events, chicken events. It, you know, it's quite alarming if you want to really look into it. So did anybody see the piece that was recently uh, published in multiple um, sources about the German field test over a long period of time which sought to identify insect numbers. And what they discovered was that insect numbers had diminished by 75% over three decades. And this was something that occurred in the light of um, the EU deciding not to be more um, uh, on the front foot with regard to pesticide use. But if we're going to acknowledge that it is what we're doing, industrial agriculture, that it's carbon economy agriculture which is causing the problem, what alternatives are there in practical terms for us in the Australian context? And Bruce, I'm going to ask you because you're the one who's been doing practical research into um, those those, those potential alternatives? Well, one of the, the things about the traditional Aboriginal agriculture is that the plants were perennial. And some of the, when I'm at discussions like this in university, some of the agricultural scientists uh, say, well, that's an indication that Aboriginal people weren't actually doing anything. They were just using what was already there. Well, far from it, Aboriginal people had made enormous changes to the landscape but they were working in concert uh, with the landscape as well. And that all of those plants were perennial, but they were allowed to coexist. The Monong fields that Sir Thomas Mitchell stretching, saw stretching from Williamstown to Adelaide, he only saw a portion of them, but that's in fact how wide they were. They were on the best soils in Australia, and it was virtually treeless. Um, Bill Gamage has written a book um, about uh, how Aboriginal people had changed the landscape deliberately to, in order to grow food for themselves, uh, but also to look after the earth. All of, those, all of those plants are perennial. 
Those yellow flowering plants that Mitchell saw, which he thought was one, were actually three or four different plants, including bulbine lily, moth orchid, uh, myrnong, uh, microceris lanceolata, all, all of those plants. And it was a system that was self-sustaining and it all grew through moss. Um, and it, when the sheep arrived and started eating um, out the Murnong, because they, they learnt very quickly that they could nose the soil away. The tilth of it was so light that a sheep could nose the soil away and get at the tuber and eat it. And they trampled that moss within weeks. J. E. Lloyd from uh, Colac, one of the first European farmers there, talked about the fertility that he took over and described how it disappeared within weeks, how after all the moss was trampled, uh, the dews in that country ceased. It, this is an incredible change in the fertility of the earth. So to return to those Aboriginal perennial grains um, um, is not reg regressive. It's not uh, flaky. It's pure agricultural science because it's about soil health and soil wealth. And the, um, the, the beauty of it's going to be for us is that they, the perennial plants have such massive root systems that they sequester carbon. We won't have to do anything remarkable about um, meeting our carbon emission targets as long as we grow perennial plants and stop ploughing the ground. Uh, to mean that we're going to stop ploughing the ground overnight um, and that we're not going to be able to buy carrots and stuff like that. It'll be a period of time, but instead of buying carrots, we'll be growing myrnong, which are perennial vegetables and um, are good for the earth and have a symbiosis with the soil where it increases the tilth. Um, and these things in 100 years will be known as agricultural science as long as we are able to win the fight against those who don't farm the soil at all but manage our financial markets and manage the global system that Charles frightened me with before where Bayer are going to buy Monsanto. Um, and you have this massive um, non-farming sector deciding what farmers do and what people eat. We have to resist it. And in my um, travels around the country, and I wish I wasn't doing it, um, but in my travels I'm encouraged by young people who are the, the vanguards of this movement um, and, and the warriors, and without them I'm, I'm sure we would plummet into the, the fate that we've set up for ourselves. We can resist it, but geez, we're going to have to do some resistance. Geordie, I think the big picture um, which you were sort of hinting at before is that um, the big multinationals are driving the global economy because of this stupid uh, economic rationalist view that we need growth for the sake of growth. But growth, endless growth means endless destruction. And that's what's happening. And um, we're probably not going to change that. You've just got to look at our politicians. That's all they can talk about is growth and jobs, and um, particularly growth. So what I talk about in my book, uh, and Bruce does the same, uh, 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 Solutions for Hope, and, and I, I call it an underground uh, 
uh, insurgency, playing on the soil, obviously, but it's how we turn farming around and we know we can do it and um, cut ourselves loose of the big end of town. I mean, you've got your biggest chemical companies, your biggest pharmaceutical companies, your big food processors who process all the nutrients out of the food so they last longer on the shelf. The chemicals and the fertiliser destroy the microbial world who now don't source the nutrients for our food. So we're e eating empty, nutrient empty food along with things like uh, Roundup, the world's most uh, widely used herbicide, which we now know is in all our food and baby's milk. And it's one of the key factors in disturbing our microbiome, therefore our entire immune system. That story is only just being allowed to come out. So we can, through the way urban people can buy their food, the way we grow the food and the way we re regenerate landscape, has to be the pathway for us to disempower these bastards because they're the destructive element and, and the philosophy behind it. And, um, uh, it's nothing wrong with being an insurgent, is there, Bruce? But that's what yeah. is behind this whole story. It's it's really um, huge issues. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we usually think of um, the you know youth and revolution as being uh, an inherently urban undertaking, the kind of thing that happens in the streets um, of of our cities. But what you're describing is is an inversion of of this process. But at the same time. I grew up in country New South Wales. I imagine a number of you grew up in small towns and I returned to my hometown after decades away and it's, it's a pretty town, it's a forgotten town and it's all of the old shops are shuttered. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, there are incomers who bring energy and, and youth, but by and large, it doesn't have the kind of communal structures that it once had because everyone who is young has fled to the city. Mm. So what can we do to encourage these, this, this new generation to actually go out and practice the kind of agriculture that you two are discussing that fuses both immemorial and cutting edge kind of ecological ideas in such a way as to actually say, well, these, these production processes cannot continue um, because it is inimical to all that's kind of holy and good. I'll give a quick answer before handing to Bruce. I, I don't, I'd see it as a three-part process, which is regenerative agriculture, which really uh, in time will mean more labour intensivity, so more people coming back into... Because the industrial model is get big or get out, so uh, labour's stripped out of the whole economy. The second element is what's happening in... Because my youngest daughter works in Melbourne in the food centre and it's really an exciting space and, and in other cities of developing food gardens and you know Stephanie Alexander teaching in schools. But the third element is what um, David Holmgren, the co-founder of Permaculture, has just got a book coming out this week called Retro Suburbia, which is showing how the suburban environment can go back to growing food and sharing space and houses and it's, it's so it's three elements of where we can turn this around, re regenerate community and the land. But, um, so you're saying it's not just about going out into the farmland, it's about what's happening here in, in Newcastle that individuals with um, small kind of backyards can actually take part. And also the this. food, if they want to buy nutrient-dense, healthy food, free of chemical and full of nutrients, that means sort of organic or, or grown off healthy landscapes, and that feeds back to the people growing that. So it's... It's an indivisible partnership, is part of it. And then you bring into play what Bruce is talking about, uh, re rediscovering 
uh, indigenous foods that are chock full of nutrients we haven't even looked at in, in the industrial food model. And um, that's probably the fourth element, yeah. Yeah, it can start in the backyard and just growing simple things um, like salad greens. Um, they're so easy to grow and so, so much a, a part of a, a good diet. But we can also replace some of those with indigenous greens and, and use the plants that actually want to grow here uh, that aren't looking for more water, aren't looking for any extra fertility other than Australia provides. Uh, these are the things that we ought to be looking to. The plants that live here uh, that want to be our friends and not, uh, not exotic vegetables, not exotic fruits, but the things that actually want to grow in Australia, the things suited to our soil and climate. Um, but look, we're all friends here. Um, I don't want it to get out um, that I'm suggesting that we uh, fall in love with beauty, um, but I think it would be very healthy for us if we, we started to look at the world and its beauty and encourage it and resist those who want to destroy it, who want to pull down a tree because it's going to get in the way of a multi-storey complex somewhere. You know, help those who are resisting that urge to destroy beauty in the world. Put up with the inconvenience of tree roots in your backyard um, and, and just savour the beauty of the world. I think there's too little of it um, you know, we think that beauty is, you know, in Andrew Bolt's eye, a field of tulips, um, which, um, you know, he enjoys. But really, it, it could be just um, a lawn of uh, wallaby grass, a, a plant that you don't have to do anything to encourage it. It wants to grow there. Let it go. Um, it doesn't look like lawn. It looks like wallaby grass. Uh, but it does the same thing, and it sweetens the soil. So get used to a, a front lawn of wallaby grass and watch your bandicoots start eating all your tulips. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is Australia. We really need to uh, revere and respect it. But don't tell everyone else that I've been flaky today. I'm feeling pretty bloody flaky, I can tell you, because I've been on the road for 15 days. I've got another 10 to go. My dogs are in the pound. Um, you know, my river is somewhere else, and I'm bloody lonely. <laughs> Geordie, there's, a, there's another big aspect to, to all this. Um, and I mentioned a little bit of it in the book, is that the not-for-profit environmental group Planet Ark have surveyed Australian children. And one of the stats that really rocked me is, is that children under the age of six, only one in four has ever climbed a tree or a rock. And as they're saying, for every hour of outdoor play, there's seven hours in front of a screen. And so we're, we're divorcing the next generation from nature. So if, we're, if we do that, and, and um, I just think, uh, uh, we're all three of us are writers and we know the power of metaphor, but in 1946, Churchill was on his way across the states in a train to give a speech at a uh, college in Missouri. And he coined the phrase, um, from Stettin in the Adriatic to um, whichever the town was in the, uh, I've got it wrong way around, from Stettin in the Balkans to 
uh, Trieste and the Adriatic, an iron curtain is descending across Europe. And that metaphor has stuck since, and Churchill was a, a great writer. And I would say that we now have an electronic curtain descending between uh, our Earth and the next generation. And, um, you know, I hope f Facebook disappears off the face of the Earth with what it's going through because it's doing ten times more harm. It's not connecting people, it's disconnecting. And until we start to re-identify with Mother Earth and, and healthy food and healthy ecosystems, um, that's one of the big problems we're facing. And again, it's the big multinationals driving it for mega profits. Um, these two are too modest to say it, but the other thing that you can do is you can get a copy of Bruce and Charles's book and read them because they're thrilling in the way that it is when you meet an idea that upsets all of the established notions that you've been told you should have and offers you a way through to an entirely new or old relationship to the world. So um, I... I would now like to give over the final part of this discussion to you all. So if you'd like to shout questions at our two authors, uh, we might cover ground that I've, I've failed to actually um, cover so far. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, folks. Thanks for coming today. It was an excellent speech. Um, I'm a teaching student. Uh, I uh, ex um, eco terrorist, and um, well, <laughs> but who's a real eco terrorist? Um, I was curious about um, the education aspect because I've been recently looking into, and there's a sorely lacking area in education in teaching teachers to teach it with a more eco critical gaze, or, or biosemiotics is another word for it, the language that we all have in common with life on Earth. Um, I'm curious, I heard you mention a name, uh, Stephanie Alexander, that goes into schools. Um, I'm wondering if you have much contact with schools and um, because uh, it, these are our future voters and it, I'm, I'm finding that as we fight coal seam gas, etc., um, it's the law and it's being learned in the law and politics and a disinterest in these things through things like Facebook, etc., which is affecting the ability to deep think also. Uh, that is lacking in education. I'm wondering if, if, if you're seeing much um, in the area of people going into schools and encouraging, even whether it be through texts such as like the Lorax or um, uh, Sean Tan's The Rabbit, uh, and, and whether you're seeing much of that and, um, or whether you're seeing much resistance to it, because one of the large problems, like you were saying with farmers, is actually also old teachers and their enthusiasm also. Bruce, you, you fairly regularly go into schools, don't you? Um, yeah, I do. Um, and I'm, I'm an ex-school teacher, you know, from a, a long way back, but, and I haven't done it for years, but I'm still going into schools. And it, teaching is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I, I was a, a fencing contractor, and, um, you know, people say, gee, that's hard work. Well, I tell you what, it's easy. Um, <laughs> Uh, because you can take your dog and you can boil, boil a billy for a cup of tea any time you feel like it. That's an easy job and a beautiful job, um, even though I'm building fences that I deplore. Um, but, yeah, the kids are wonderful. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there's a, a junior version of Dark Emu coming out uh, in a couple of months' time. And... Um, 
for the seven to 12 year olds. And I, I, I've been saying to people that I, I think the eight year old is the moral arbiter of the world. Because when I uh, go around to schools, you say to kids, there's uh, 100 sandwiches, 100 apples and 100 people, how do you divide them? The eight year old just goes, oh well, you know, everyone gets a sandwich and an apple. The 14 year old asks you, who grew the apples? Um, you know, it's a different mindset. And I think uh, the total fairness of the eight-year-old is, is the thing that is going to save us. If we can help hold our eight-year-old mentality for a little longer um, into our 30s and 40s, uh, it'll be a better world because intrinsic fairness um, is lacking. And, you know, it, it might be a long shot to say that's why we've allowed David Warner to do what he did, but it is. It is, because we've been encouraging intrinsic unfairness, so we see what Warner did is just uh, part of business, business as usual, and we have to stop doing that. And the kid, the eight-year-old kid is the one who will do it. And I, I, I look at the eyes of 12-year-olds who are still struggling with their eight-year-old self because they want to go back there, and they're being dragged mercilessly into an adult world at a younger and younger age. They're no longer allowed to be romantic. They don't get the opportunity to climb the tree and climb the rock that Charles has talking about. They're being dragged into a, um, an adult world and we need them um, to stay young. We don't need them to be uninformed uh, because the, the most exciting kids I see are, are very informed um, and very uh, clever but they're also children and they're not hardened um, and they're not world weary at 12 years of age. They are minds on the make still and that's the way we should, should have them. Um, I, I'm encouraged by kids. I'm encouraged by uh, university students too. I'm encouraged by young people in general. They're much better at looking after the world than we are, my generation. Um, my generation is hopeless. Don't have anything to do with them. <laughs> I wonder if I could just make a comment because I think it's a great question. Um, and I, a lot of my family are teachers and I've taught university students, but from my own mistake-ridden journey that I recount in the book um, before scales came off my eyes, I realised I was ecologically illiterate. I, I couldn't read a, read a landscape and how it functioned. So what I've tried to do in the book is actually simplify the way landscapes work and self-organise into five simple functions, like the solar cycle and soil and water and that sort of thing, and biodiversity. And the fifth one is this square foot of real estate, the worldviews that we apply to it. And that could be a model that we could be applied from the youngest age up. And, and just watching my eldest daughter teach preschool and primaries, and then when she gets them into the field, how they respond. I think that's absolutely fundamental, but we've got to start. If um, uh, Google Robert McFarlane and rewilding children, and he's the British nature writer whose own kids took part in an experiment in Cambridge where the school, the preschool, was taken outside and they were permitted to kind of go and play in the woods. That, that was their school. And what Robert took away from this is that children are natural map makers, they're natural builders, and what's intriguing in relation to what we know of, of, of the land ethics of First Nations people is that they become storytellers. 
So the idea of, of narrative and place start to become reconnected again. Um, so, um, can, I, can I cheat Geordie? Yes, of course. And ask uh, Charles a, a question from the stage rather than the floor. Um, as a child, I used to love wandering around my grandfather's uh, shed because he had all bits of harness. He had a, a wagon and a, a horse, and the bits of harness, there were carbide lamps, there were all this mechanical stuff to do with horses. And I used to love involving myself in it. But I was wanting to ask Charles, once you had um, you know, the scars had come off your eyes and you're walking around the farm. You also had those other generations of your family who had been working the land differently. Um, and you're walking around those sheds seeing your grandfather's hammers and things like that. How did you feel about having diverged from your family history? That's a good question. Um, I, I didn't... Um Blame them. I just understood where they'd come from, that, uh, that mind that they'd inherited from their, their culture. So uh, it wasn't a position of blame, but it's, 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 uh, it's a disturbing question, yeah. Yes, lady in the centre. I guess I just wanted to bring into this conversation um, the theme of connection, and you spoke about connecting with the land and how essential that that was for our for our health and I think um, I just wanted to bring into that connection with each other um, that this disconnection with land goes hand in hand with disconnection from people and I don't I don't think we really have much community anymore every house is boxed off um, being a young mum in Newcastle, my kids' playground was a piece of land that was fenced in, separated from all the other families um, around me. And if I wanted to take my children for a walk, it was a, a hot walk on a hot pavement with no street trees, uh, no, no gardens to stop by. That's changing. It's definitely changing. But I guess I just wanted to bring that into the conversation that I think the two go hand in hand, connecting with the environment and connecting with each other and, and healing uh, as, as, a, as a healing journey. There's um, a fascinating piece by George Monbeo recently about the idea of loneliness and the fact that, that loneliness is actually a very modern disease that kills us. And the idea that connection is actually not just a function of psychological, but, but of, of pure human health. But Bruce, this might be one for you in terms of, I've watched you a few times now speak on this subject and speak about the ways in which um, in, indigenous friends of yours who have not necessarily been very connected to land have taken part in these projects and through doing so, something has happened. You seem to have identified a kind of um, a health that emerges from that, that re-engagement. Is that, am, I, am I reading that in or is that really there? No, it's really there. It's not about indigenous people. Um, it's about people um, and reconnecting with the earth. Where the office um, where I work that I, I built myself, um, it's just a box 
with um, a veranda and one chair. Um, but every time I sit on that chair outside the office, I should be inside the office, but I'm often not. I'm sitting on the chair. A ground thrush turns up. If I sit on that chair, it will turn up. And I can watch and watch and watch from the kitchen window and it won't be there. But if I sit on that chair, it turns up. It's a friend of mine and we have a relationship. I don't understand the relationship, but I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm very glad that it's there. Um, and I'll take this opportunity to wish John Maynard well. John Maynard was going to chair a couple of these sessions today. He had a heart attack yesterday and he's in hospital. Um, so I'd like you to wish John Maynard well. If I could just follow that lead, uh, I don't know if any of you have read Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Woods. It's, it's a wonderful book where he, he addresses what he calls nature deficit disorder in our children. And he marshals an enormous amount of evidence to show that uh, when children or people that are ill in hospital or wherever engage with nature, that it has a huge positive impact on physical and psychological health. So we're made, we co-evolved in nature and, and now we're living outside it. And it's, it's little wonder we have this dystopia of modern diseases, etc. And it doesn't answer your question about isolation in the city, but I mentioned before uh, David Holmgren's coming book on retro suburbia. It's a, a lifetime's work showing how in the suburbs you can start recreating community and, and breaking down backyard fences and growing communal food and all that sort of stuff. So I think that solution's coming. And there's another side to that. I, th I think reconciliation with dispossessed Indigenous people, uh, you know, the government's not going to compensate. At least we can work together regenerating country, and, th and that's a start. Because a it, start. it's important, to, um, particularly to um, the, the, the Indigenous people, but also um, to ourselves. And it's a wonderful partnership that we're finding at home. I think uh, that we'll have to leave it there. I'm so sorry that we've run out of time. Can I just say to Bruce that uh, we, we've heeded your call, Bruce, that we've planted wallaby grass, Queensland blue and kangaroo grass <laughs> in our backyard instead of the lawn. <laughs> so on that hopeful note, <laughs> we'll leave it. Uh, thanks so much to you two, to Charles and Bruce. Please do beard them in the um, signing room and get hold of a copy of this book and David's when it's launched next week. And, um, you know, it starts here. Thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.